This is The Reckoning. I'm Dan Gediman. April 14, 1865. The cannons have been thundering. For hours, in honor of the federal victory and Lee's surrender, the Confederacy has gone down. April 1865 was a momentous month for everyone in the United States, white and black, free and enslaved. On April the 9th at Appomattox Courthouse, General Robert E. Lee surrendered his Army of Northern Virginia to General Ulysses S. Grant. For some, it brought sadness, bewilderment, and sometimes fear. Ellen Wallace was a slaveholder from Hopkinsville, Kentucky. What will become of the fragments? Will they again be united in one glorious bond that has been purified by fire and blood? Never more to be severed? Forever one and the same in prosperity and honor? Or shall the bayonet of a tyrant pin men together in the bonds of eternal revenge and hate? For others, it was a cause for celebration. Eli Coleman was enslaved in Marion County, Kentucky. When the war was over, Master, he called us slaves to him and told us that we was free and we could do just as we pleased. Some of the slaves began to holler and shout, but Master said he would not have any of that hollering and they quieted down. Some of the older Negroes began to cry and take on, because they realized what that meant was they had no jobs or any place to go. Then a few days later, on April 15th, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. In the homes of some white Confederate supporters, this was a time of grim satisfaction, as Lincoln embodied all their resentments against the federal government. But among black Kentuckians, there was great mourning. Reverend Elijah Mars wrote in his memoirs about the reactions of the soldiers in his army unit. Almost before we had time to stop smiling about Lee's surrender, the sad, sad news came on Sunday morning that Abraham Lincoln, whom we almost esteemed as a god, had been assassinated by the notorious J. Wilkes Booth. I marched my men out on the plain and sat down and wept. We remained there until nightfall, and then returned to town and joined with the men in camp in sorrowing over our loss. Our Moses had been slain, and we knew not what the future had in store for us. With the war over and the institution of slavery in tatters, there was great uncertainty for all Kentuckians, regardless of race. Many white Kentuckians who had supported the Union found themselves allied with former Confederates in a shared desire to reestablish white supremacy as the law of the land, while African Americans navigated a time that some say was even more dangerous than slavery. This is The Reckoning. The rest of 1865 remained a confusing mess for black people in Kentucky. General Lee may have surrendered, but it would take until December for the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery to go into effect. So in Kentucky, blacks lived in a kind of nebulous state between slavery and freedom. Patrick Lewis is a scholar-in-residence at the Filson Historical Society in Louisville. He says many white Kentuckians clung to what they could of slavery as long as they could. Slavery is still legal in this state until the the end of 1865 with the final ratification of the 13th Amendment. And state authorities 
in Frankfurt, in local police organizations, sheriff's offices, um, city governments, and down to individual owners of enslaved people are trying to exert as much control as they can over an African-American population which has, over the past year, reached out and seized freedom. Seizing freedom meant many formerly enslaved people in Kentucky and throughout the South chose to leave their enslavers and settle elsewhere. Marion Lucas is an emeritus professor of history at Western Kentucky University and author of A History of Blacks in Kentucky, From Slavery to Segregation. Now, a whole host of Kentucky blacks left and went north of the Ohio River. And the largest movement is they moved from the countryside into the towns in Kentucky. But basically, facilities in the towns couldn't handle these people, so they build shacks and they're relegated to the worst of the land. Again, Patrick Lewis. They're more like uh, informal refugee camps, shanty towns, where survival is very precarious. Labor is scarce. Um, employers in the city of Louisville are wary of hiring African Americans, especially on anything like long-term labor contracts. So the work that they do find is temporary. It's it's hard. It's dirty. It's backbreaking. It's it's many of the same jobs that people were doing while they were enslaved, either in farms or in in urban spaces like Louisville. And they're living hand to mouth. They may or may not be compensated. They certainly probably aren't fairly compensated. And there's great risk of starvation. There is great risk in these informal communities of death from epidemic disease. Things got so bad in Louisville during the winter of 1866 that 135 African Americans died in these refugee camps in just the month of February. There was only a tiny amount of state money available to care for destitute freed people, and it wasn't nearly enough to clothe, feed, and house the tens of thousands of refugees living in Kentucky's cities. And for African Americans who elected to stay and work on farms in rural Kentucky, the situation was not much better. Eli Coleman had been enslaved in Marion County. When the war was over, the slaves asked Master what they were going to do and if he would let them stay. He said no, as the government had set them free and he could not go against his government. He finally told them as many could stay as wanted to, and he would furnish them teams of horses and see that they got something to eat and work for him on the halves as sharecroppers. Most of them stayed, me for one. Sharecropping is a system of labor that replaced slavery throughout the former slave states. Here's the way it worked. A small farmer, whether black or white, would enter into a contract with a landowner whereby the landlord would furnish some combination of horses, plows, seed, and enough food to get by. Then, when the crop was harvested, the sharecropper would give the landlord a percentage, as well as reimburse him for anything the sharecropper had used during the year. On paper, it seemed like a doable arrangement. But the devil, as they say, was in the details. Again, Eli Coleman. I was a sharecropper, and that was really when slavery began. For when we got our crop made, he took every bit of it to pay our debts and had nothing left to buy winter clothes or pay doctor bills. And master, he never owned us anymore. He didn't care what become of us, as he wouldn't lose anything then. If we got sick or died, and it never mattered because he could get another Negro without it costing him anything. The white man, he thought we ought to still work for them, like we did during slavery time. 
they still think the Negro ought to work for them for nothing and like it. It wasn't just farm workers like Eli Coleman who went back to work for their former enslavers. This was often the case for domestic workers as well. In a previous episode, we met Bridget Johnson, whose third great-grandmother, Louisa Taylor, had been enslaved by the Bullitt family as a household servant in Louisville. Even after emancipation, she continued to work for the Bullitt family until her death in 1885. When she was free, she was 60 years old. What else was she supposed to do? She was a servant. She served, she cooked, she cleaned, she did the same thing. But did she earn any pay? Did she, you know, what did she earn as a free woman? I guess she figured like, well, I might, if I'm going to do this, I might as well stay where I've been at my, all my life instead of going somewhere else and working for another family doing the same thing. I kind of figured that's how sharecroppers feel. You know, they stayed on the, the same plantations where they were enslaved and doing the same work, earning money, but not earning enough to really provide for their families, not able to provide shoes or let their children go to school because they needed their physical labor to harvest. When harvest time came, they were free, but they weren't free. The 13th Amendment ending slavery did not go into effect until December of 1865. And it should be noted that Kentucky was one of only three states that didn't ratify the amendment at the time and that it would not do so until 1976, over a century later. Kadata Williams is a history professor at Wayne State University. Part of what we have to do when we talk about places like Kentucky is to underscore the fact that just because they did not leave the Union did not mean that they were any less committed to holding on to slavery. So for them, the 13th Amendment is an affront. They did nothing in their minds to merit losing their good thing, which was slavery. And so what we see them do is act that out by doing whatever they can to retain control of the newly freed Black population. With the passage of the 13th Amendment, Kentucky was obligated to rewrite some of its slavery-era laws. But in the process, it made sure Black Kentuckians only got a bare minimum of rights. They could own property, but they couldn't vote. They couldn't testify in court against a white person, and they required a white witness to enter into any contract. In addition, says historian Patrick Lewis, the Kentucky legislature adapted other existing laws to ensure the continuation of the master-servant relationship. And one of the things that they wanted to do was to find ways to use the law to entrap African-American people in exploitable labor situations. And so... They take things that had existed always, like vagrancy laws that applied to free African-Americans, and they, they sort of reimagine those as ways for communities to, to round up and arrest African-American people who could not defend themselves, who could not justify what they were doing in cities as they had come to look for work and to bind them out for periods of time. Um, if they could identify former slave owners, then, then in a lot of cases they would be bound out for periods of indentured servitude back to those same masters and, and essentially into slavery-like labor relationships. African-American children were not exempt from these new black codes. 
a provision was added which stipulated that children deemed unemployed or not sufficiently cared for by their parents would be bound out as apprentices until they turned 21, with preference again given to their former enslaver. University of Kentucky history professor Vanessa Holden. It's important to note that that this was a way to coerce labor forum um, and separate the families of free people. Um, not surprisingly, in Kentucky, the system of apprenticeship morphs so that newly emancipated people, um, particularly children who come from families fresh from slavery, who do not have many resources, who, you know, newly own themselves, let alone have any resources to support themselves, can very easily be targeted for coerced labor under the system. These vagrancy and apprenticeship laws were not overturned until 1899. So for roughly 30 years after emancipation, thousands of black Kentuckians were legally forced to work for white Kentuckians, who were sometimes their former enslavers. Historian Patrick Lewis. And so these practices of essentially re-enslaving, using the police state to re-enslave uh, African-American people and exploit their labor is something that continues right on through Kentucky. And, and you know, we'll see this surface again in the decades after Reconstruction uh, in the Deep South as convict leasing, you know, as arresting African-Americans on the faultiest of pretenses and sentencing them to long prison terms where their labor is then rented out to anyone who wants it. Starting in 1867, Congress passed a series of Reconstruction Acts which outlined the steps that the former Confederate states would need to take to be readmitted to the Union. One of their features was to forbid many former Confederates from voting or holding office. But because Kentucky remained loyal to the Union, Reconstruction never happened in the state. As a result, the Kentucky legislature almost immediately reenfranchised all former Confederates. This allowed them to not just vote, but also to run for public office. Mississippi State history professor Ann Marshall. And so because of this, you have this enormous level of former Confederate candidates from everything from, you know, governor to um, the state court of appeals to local sheriffs around the state touting this Confederate service and the conservatism that it stands for. And then they're supported by people who were former unionists because, you know, this wartime differences don't mean as much in Kentucky as they might, because after the war, white Kentuckians are generally conservative in their outlook and want the same things. Not only were former Confederates and Unionists making peace politically, they were also taking up arms together against a common foe, the newly emancipated African Americans. This was a process that actually began during the war, as disgruntled Union soldiers began deserting their units and started to roam the countryside in armed bands, sometimes linking up with pro-Confederate marauders. History professor Marion Lucas. You have all these Union officers from Kentucky who, once the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, they resigned their commissions, and they come back to Kentucky, and in that first uh, five years or so, these guys engage in murder and killing. They stop at nothing. They engage in some really terrible crimes. After the war, some of these outlaw groups started calling themselves the Regulators and began a reign of terror against African Americans. 
historian Patrick Lewis. And these groups take any number of, of different names. They're Skagsmen, they're Regulators, they're Ku Klux in other states, they're Pale Faces and Knights of the White Camellia, and you kind of name it. And so they'll have a list of targets, and, and, you know, in each county and locality, it's going to be different. Usually, they will first go after leaders within the African-American community. Ministers are particularly vulnerable. School teachers are particularly vulnerable. Returning uh, veterans of the U.S. Army are particularly vulnerable, though those are, generally speaking, a, a dangerous set of men to go after because a lot of times they came home with their guns and they'll shoot back. The Reverend Elijah Mars was one of those returning veterans. In his memoirs, he tells several stories of these groups terrorizing various black communities where he lived. One night... While we were all asleep, the KKK rode into town. Coming into the yard of the house where I lived, they dismounted and began stripping the trees of switches, as if preparing to come into the house to administer a flogging to every one of us. I stole downstairs, and armed with my old pistol, stationed myself in a corner, prepared to fight my way through, should occasion demand it. They made threats of some sort which I could not hear, But finally they rode off. My back was saved, and I felt mightily relieved. I then called the colored men together and organized the Society for Self-Protection, calling ourselves the Loyal League. And we were always in readiness for any duty. For three years, I slept with a pistol under my head, an Enfield rifle at my side, and a corn knife at the door. But I never had occasion to use them. Eventually, there were so many complaints of violence and mistreatment that the federal government established a Freedmen's Bureau outpost in Kentucky. The Freedmen's Bureau was a government agency set up in 1865 by President Lincoln to aid newly freed people in former slave states with food, clothing, and shelter. Over time, its scope expanded to setting up schools and hospitals, overseeing labor relations, and generally protecting the rights of African Americans. But its mere existence in Kentucky was the source of great rage for some. Historian George Wright is the author of Racial Violence in Kentucky. It's a reminder of northern, not federal, they would call it more or less northern aggression toward the south. But for the ex-slaves, they viewed this as important in helping them start schools and helping them oh, uh, as best they could economically And the Freedmen's Bureau agents, when possible, tried to prevent violence against black people. Professor Ann Marshall. The Freedmen's Bureau became a sort of lightning rod in Kentucky. You had instances of white Kentuckians burning down freed schools and Freedmen's Bureau offices uh, throughout the state. And so to a lot of Kentuckians, it was just another example of how basically they'd misplaced their trust in the federal government and that it it was a coercive force rather than a positive one. Because of white citizens' intense resentment against the Freedmen's Bureau, newly elected Democratic leaders in state government were successfully able to force the Bureau out of Kentucky in July 1868, four years before they ceased nationally. But according to historian Patrick Lewis, in the three short years they were in Kentucky, they were able to accomplish quite a bit, especially in terms of education. And the goal in those earliest stages is 
to obviously educate everyone as much as possible, but then to educate teachers as well. And so empower African-Americans to go out and be the ones who carry that educational mission forward and, and, and multiply the impact of literacy and learning. And so the educational infrastructure that groups like the Freedmen's Bureau set up in Kentucky is incredible. Um, Kentucky has one of the highest rates of self-taught African-American teachers running schools for freed people anywhere in the country. Um, So Kentucky African-Americans really grasp onto literacy and they take ownership of that. The Reverend Elijah Mars was one of those self-taught African-American teachers and would eventually become the president of Simmons College, the first black college in Kentucky. But in many black communities throughout the state, it was a case of one step forward and two steps back. There were many instances of black schools being built only to be burnt down by white mobs days or weeks after opening. Then there was the problem of finding and keeping school teachers in the face of harassment or even death threats. Blacks in Kentucky had to go to court to get the state to fund public schools for their children. And when they succeeded, a loophole was created whereby only taxes from black communities could be used to fund black schools. And since many of that population were so poor, there was hardly any available money. Eventually, a federal court ruled that this practice was unconstitutional, and grudgingly, Kentucky started using general tax revenue to fund public schools for black students. But they were often housed in substandard buildings, and they were usually only grade schools. The first black high school in the state, Central High in Louisville, opened in 1873, and for 50 years it was the only black high school in the state. As a result, for many decades most black Kentuckians couldn't receive a high school education because no high schools were available to attend. According to historian George Wright, this was by design. Most white Kentuckians would say that the education that the ex-slaves needed was one that would tie them primarily to an agriculture lifestyle consistent with slavery. It would be one that would make them beneficial to white Kentuckians. It would mean clearly that they don't need education beyond a certain point. For black Kentuckians, there was not only a struggle for education, there was also a struggle for political power. In 1870, the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, granting African-American men the right to vote. But this also marked the emergence of Jim Crow laws, used throughout the South to prevent blacks from voting. Grandfather clauses, literacy tests, and poll taxes were all used to keep African-Americans from the voting booth. And in Kentucky, they also used violence to suppress the vote. Historian Patrick Lewis. So they use the the state government to create a battalion of militia. So they arm companies of white men who go out to suppress so-called riots, which were actually just Republican Party political meetings, um, often at black churches. And so through street violence armed by the state militia, Democrats in Lexington try and suppress the African-American vote. The use of the state militia to keep blacks from voting forced the federal government to bring in the army to try to stop the violence and allow blacks to vote. This clash between state and federal troops brought Kentucky much bad publicity nationally. So as an alternative to using violent means to suppress the vote, the city of Lexington decided to pass a poll tax, 
Again, Patrick Lewis. It's nothing but $2 per voter. Um, But of course, for African-Americans who are struggling to feed and clothe their families, that's an excessive amount of money. And, and eventually this resulted in a Supreme Court case, U.S. v. Reese, which was decided in 1876, where uh, a former Unionist officer who was uh, law partners with a, a former Confederate officer argued that nowhere did this poll tax disenfranchise African-Americans for being African-Americans, which would have made it um, illegal under the 14th Amendment, but it only disenfranchised them because they were poor. And so this precedent spread like wildfire as other southern states um, regained political power and returned that political power to white conservative Democrats. Interestingly, while Lexington and other places in the state had poll taxes, Kentucky never had a statewide tax. According to Patrick Lewis, the reason they didn't had everything to do with the state wanting to be seen as having good race relations, even if, in fact, they didn't. White Kentuckians don't want to pass those laws because it reflects very poorly upon them to have done so. They like to think of themselves just as they like to think of themselves during the era of slavery as more enlightened. But they are happy to be the the incubator, the developer of this playbook that they then, uh, of course, publish in, in nationally circulated newspapers. You know, the, the Louisville Courier Journal, at, at, you know, during the late 19th century is one of the most widely read newspapers anywhere in the country and across the globe. It is a, a thought leader. And so as Kentuckians document these local legislative successes within the state, they are showing the rest of the South what you can do. Because Kentucky remained loyal to the Union during the Civil War, it sidestepped most facets of Reconstruction, which enraged so many in the former Confederacy. It never had a period of Republican leadership, or African Americans elected to statewide office, or Union troops garrisoned in its cities for a decade. And yet, as we'll hear in our next episode, Kentucky embraced the tactics of lynching and racial terror as fervently as any state in the Deep South. That's next time on The Reckoning. The Reckoning was written and produced by me, Dan Gediman. Our editor is Loretta Williams. Rhonda Rogers Van Dyke, our assistant producer, with production help from Nancy Rosenbaum and engineering from Cochin Tashiro. We had marketing help from Creative PR and legal assistance from the Dinsmore and SKO law firms. Our fact checker is Kathy Brady. Much of the music heard in the series, including our theme music, was composed by Jacory 1200 Arthur, with additional music from the Artlist Music Library. Our voice actors were Susan Linville, Aaron Jones, Mark Foreman, Alec Voles, Jackie Blue, Keith McGill, and Robert Lewis Thompson. We had research help from Penn Bogert, Dave Morgan, Shirley Harmon, Tom Owen, James Pritchard, and Jenny Cole. Our series is produced in partnership with Louisville Magazine and Louisville Public Media. Our thanks to Josh Moss at Louisville Magazine and Stephen George and Erica Peterson at Louisville Public Media. Major funding for this series was provided by the Community Foundation of Louisville, the Norton Foundation, the Snowy Owl Foundation, Eleanor Bingham Miller, Emily Bingham and Stephen Riley, Victoire and Owsley Brown III, Nina Bonney, and Gil and Augusta Brown Holland. Special thanks to the Filson Historical Society, Dr. George Wright, and especially to Val Jones. 
Our deepest thanks to the Johnson, Bolds, and Stites families for letting us into your lives. If you missed any part of this series or want to hear additional episodes that dive even deeper into this subject, please subscribe to our podcast by visiting reckoningradio.org, where you can also find a detailed bibliography, free educational curricula, and over 100 oral histories of formerly enslaved Kentuckians. That's reckoningradio.org. Thanks for listening.